0: This podcast is brought to you by AG3D Printing, bringing your ideas into reality. You can check us out on Instagram at ag 3 D printing or at our website at www.AG3D-Printing.com. And if you want to help support the podcast, shop through our Amazon link on this week's episode or any week's episode or at the homepage at todayinspace.net forward slash home. Thanks. And let's start the show. in space space. space. welcome everybody and welcome back to today in space this is episode 101 and it is october 3rd i can't believe it's already october this is just ridiculous uh but we're here And uh, we've got a lot of science to cover in this episode. So uh, I want to start by covering an update that happened uh, during last week. We didn't get to cover it because we did the episode 100. Uh, So let's get into it. And it's an update officially from SpaceX on Space Launch Complex 40 and and the anomaly that happened there. So let's get into it. So if you go to the page, uh, the update from September 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time is as follows. Three weeks ago, SpaceX experienced an anomaly at our Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. This resulted in the loss of one of our Falcon 9 rockets and its payload. The Accident Investigation Team, AIT, composed of SpaceX, the FAA, NASA, the U.S. Air Force, and industry experts, are currently scouring through approximately 3,000 channels of engineering data along with video, audio, and imagery. The timeline of the event is extremely short. From first signs of an anomaly to loss of data is about 93 milliseconds, or less than a tenth of a second. The majority of debris from the incident has been recovered, photographed, labeled and catalogued and is now in a hangar for inspection and use during the investigation. At this stage of the investigation, preliminary review of the data and debris suggests that a large breach in the cryogenic helium system of the second stage liquid oxygen tank took place. Updated on 924, at this time, the cause of the potential breach remains unknown. All plausible causes are being tracked in an extensive fault tree and carefully investigated. Through the fault tree and data review process, we have exonerated any connection with last year's CRS-7 mishap. The teams have continued inspections of LC-40 and the surrounding facilities. While substantial areas of the pad systems were affected, the Falcon support building adjacent to the pad was unaffected. unaffected. And per standard procedure, was unoccupied at the time of the anomaly. The new liquid oxygen farm, example given the tanks and plumbing that hold our super chilled liquid oxygen, was unaffected and remains in good working order. The RP-1 kerosene fuel farm was also largely unaffected. The pads control systems are also in relatively good condition. SpaceX's other facilities, from the payload processing facility at the Cape to the pad and hangar at LC-39A, are located several miles from LC-40 and were unaffected as well. Work continues at Pad-39A in preparation for bringing it online in November. The teams have been in contact with our Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center partners and neighbors and have found no evidence of debris leaving the immediate area of LC-40. At SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California, our manufacturing and production is continuing in a methodical manner, with teams continuing to build engines, tanks, and other systems as they are exonerated from the investigation. We will work to resume our manifest as quickly as, and as responsible once the cause of the anomal, anomaly has been identified by the accident investigation team. Pending the results of the investigation, we anticipate returning to flight as early as the November time frame. Other efforts, including the commercial crew program with NASA, are continuing to progress. Getting back to flight safety, safely and reliably is our top priority, and the data gathered from the present investigation will result in an even safer and more reliable vehicle for our customers and partners. So let's let's dive into that a little bit and touch on a few points I, I want to I want to bring to light here. Uh, you know, one of the first things you notice is they've changed the language from. Uh, calling it Space Launch Complex 40 and just calling it Launch Complex 40. And if I were to take a guess, that's an Elon Musk uh, adjustment right there. Um, You know, from my reading of him, uh, he's very picky about things that don't need to be... that are unnecessary in writing, especially, you know, using unnecessary uh, acronyms and things like that. So I... that looks like a, a... An Elon Musk uh, fix right there because it's obviously a space launch complex if we're talking about SpaceX. So you might as well just call it a launch complex. Plus, who knows, maybe they just got tired of calling it space launch complex. Um, So that's just a little little touch right there. Um, uh, A very interesting thing, you know, just about uh, an incident like this, uh, that they take the debris of the incident and they recover it, they photograph it, they label it, and it's all cataloged. Um, in this case, they brought it to the hangar for in, inspection. So, just shows you kind of the depth of of detail these these different events go into. That you know they are really trying to make sure that everything they can, all the data, all the evidence they can have, is in a place where it's accessible and you know, can be referred to and looked at. Um, so, just I thought that was a very interesting point. Uh, also, just to we we talked about the launch pad. How obviously an explosion like that is going to do some damage to the surrounding area of of uh, launch complex forty. So it's good to see that the um let's see here. Let me go back. And make sure so the surrounding facilities. Um, you know, the Falcon support building that was next to the pad unaffected Uh, the liquid oxygen farm which is all the plumbing for the liquid oxygen that was unaffected and is in good working order and the kerosene fuel farm uh, is also it says largely unaffected which to me means there was something but it's obviously nothing that is gonna you know make the fuel farm not usable Uh, and the control systems being in good condition is huge because I mean you, that is a huge part of the the pad as a as a an entity, uh, and it shows you just how complex all these things are. You know, you, when you think a launch pad, I don't think a lot of us really think of a launch pad as a super complex thing, but it it seems like it's just as complex as the rocket. I mean, obviously a rocket's a little more complex, but um, you know, everything that's involved in this is is a very complicated thing, just like having something broken on your cell phone, you know, one thing goes and you're pretty much, your whole thing starts going down. So to, you know, and how I mean is the space launch complex, sorry, the launch complex, uh, the pad itself is just as much a part of going to space as the rocket and the craft being uh, put on top and the payload going into space. So very interesting stuff. Um, it's also very good to hear from them that uh, their manufacturing or production has been continuing. You know that that has been exonerated, as they said, from the investigation, uh, which is which is a big deal for them from meeting that deadline and, and coming back in November, as as they're stating. You know, um, for instance, Orbital Sciences, Orbital ATK, when they had their explosion around the same time, uh, <clears throat> CRS seven happened for. SpaceX last year I mean to see that they're going to be back up and running by November is a very good sign. Uh there's a few things that are involved with that. Obviously it seems that from the investigation it's they haven't found anything yet. If they had found something it could have been a different deal, you know, if there was something wrong with how SpaceX was manufacturing something or something that SpaceX did that they have to do better, that timeline would have been pushed. I I can my belief is that it would have been pushed. That would have been a much bigger deal mainly because the bureaucracy you need to go through to make sure that you have dotted the I's and crossed the T's and made sure that your fault tree is in place, that you're, you're committing a corrective action and anyone who's been in engineering before or any kind of manufacturing is cringes at that word because a corrective action is a pain in the ass Because when something goes wrong, it's something you need to do. But it's a very, very grueling process. And I can't even imagine what it's like in something like uh, space travel. So uh, the fact that they've found nothing is good. But it's not so much that they haven't found anything. There's nothing... um, Let's quote. Just to make sure that we're, we're not misspeaking here. So from the updated portion of this update uh from this anomaly update. It says at this time the cause of the potential breach remains unknown. And all plausible causes are being tracked in an extensive fault tree and carefully investigated. So also through that, they in later in that paragraph, remember they mentioned that we have exonerated any connection with last year's CRS 7 mishap, which, uh, if we go back in time that was a, str- a strut, a structural strut that had released uh, and, and failed. Um, I believe there might have been something with the liquid oxygen tank that uh, released and maybe moved that away. But either way, it was a strut that was from a, another uh, manufacturer that they were using because they they weren't making them themselves. And that strut called, caused the failure. And the good thing is that the fault tree... And the data review process has said that it was not the same incident as CRS-7. So that that is a big deal for SpaceX because it shows that there isn't a giant flaw in their rocket. You know, if it was the same thing, or even close, like even sus- like suspected that it could be the same thing, that's a big deal and a big, um, it would be a huge step backwards for them because then the the trust and uh, the trust in their system would be tarnished because then it's a systemic problem and now we have to question well, is it worth it for me to send my multi-billion dollar multi-million dollar piece of equipment up with them if this thing keeps happening so uh, all really good things from this update obviously, I mean we'll keep covering it here There's still no official word, but we have had some really exciting news, thanks to SpaceX, which we're going to dive into right now, because it blew me away last week when it came out, and we have to talk about it. So, what I'm going to do is play the video that SpaceX released, and... It's going to be in the background. I'm going to talk over it. So, if you'd like to watch this with uh, with my uh, commentary on the background, uh, I'll help you uh, line it up. So, let me find the video here. Oh, it's here. It's four minutes and twenty one seconds. So, let us begin. So, I'll give you a countdown. All right. So, three, two, one, go. All right. So. You open up the video and you see a, a new different rocket, silhouettes, across a, a darkening sky with lots of people walking across uh, to enter this new spaceship. And then you look at it and it's this, there's this glass like quarter dome and lots of videos. And it's, this is not the Dragon Capsule. This is like the Dragon Capsule shuttle look to it. And it's even a different uh, launch vehicle. Because as it zooms its way down, you actually see a shit load of thrusters, which is just unbelievable. And now they're showing uh, the Apollo 11 launch pad, 39A. And then they show the scene of all of those rockets, rocket thrusters, launching at liftoff. And it's going to have over 28 million pounds of thrust. And this thing just looks ridiculous. I mean, it looks like... um, the 31st century version of the space shuttle. Uh, When it it reaches max aerodynamic pressure, it's going to be reaching over 2,000 miles an hour and climbing. And then the very cool thing that that really gets started here is that they're going to release this this dragon shuttle, I guess we'll call it, Um, and it's part of the interplanetary transport system. They're going to release it into parking orbit. And then the first stage is going to come back down, much like the Falcon 9. So, this one's a little bit different in its procedure in coming back, where the Falcon 9 kind of drops back, where this one is completely doing a 180 and turning right back. Full boosters on, and then it's going to go into a landing phase. Many of the things, the the grid fins, the, the relaunching that we've seen before, much sleeker landing legs, but they're going to land directly on the launch pad where they were before. And then they're going to do this time-lapse you see here, and now they're attaching a propellant tanker that's gonna load onto the booster over you know, a certain amount of time as it shows, which is really, they're only showing one day from this time-lapse, and then it's gonna relaunch. It's gonna go back up into orbit, utilizing their reusability concept that they've been using. So now that tanker is gonna meet up with the interplanetary transport system that's in orbit, and it's gonna dock and refuel the spaceship. And that's really important because the spaceship has used fuel getting into orbit and staying in orbit. So getting it at maximum fuel is huge. Then the tanker returns to Earth, and now the interplanetary transport system leaves for Mars. So the reason that's very important is because the more fuel you have in space, the better. And and one of the tricks they're using to get past the fact that you have less fuel is to refuel in orbit, something we don't do right now. Uh, And then on the trip, they're going to be deploying solar arrays so that they have uh, more power to use because, again, you only have what you bring with you. Uh, It's going to pass, you know, the image they're showing past the moon, 240,000 miles approximately, and it's just a great view. And in these wings, they kind of look like the sails of a ship. I mean, I think that's very iconic for what they're doing here. They're traveling the solar system. They're going to be coasting interplanetarily at over 62,000 miles per hour that's the coast that's that's their coasting and one of the great things is you see them as they're coming into Mars you have this quarter dome that i was talking about all these these windows you're going to be able to watch as you're traveling through space which is something we don't have and and the transport system is going to come in like the like the um, the shuttle uh, on its belly and then it, but instead it's gonna go vertically again to land on Mars once more. And then, as they stated in the newest thing that came out when Spacer was talking about, is they're gonna have 100 to 200 people going to Mars. And then they end this video with circling Mars with a changing. And showing multiple parts of Mars with green. And showing that we're going to terraform Mars. We're going to start making it a place where we can be. I mean, this is... It's it's so freaking unbelievable. And and I, 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 I love every... I, I nerd out about SpaceX a lot on this podcast if, if you're a regular listener. And if you're new, this is only going to keep going because they just keep they keep giving us more and more to chew on here. So let's go through some of the major tweets that uh, I found when this first was released. I think it was, was it, uh, September 25th. So, well, actually, let's go back. September 25th was the day that Elon Musk tweeted that the SpaceX propulsion was just achieved for the first time of the Raptor interplanetary transport engine, which not a lot of people have really heard about his interplanetary transport system. The best we had to go off off of online was a tweet that he had a little while back where he was talking about, uh, he was joking that, you know, this is the, uh, I'm not quoting him here, but... You know here's a little look into what the interplanetary transport system's gonna be like. And it was that clip from the Lego movie where uh the space guy actually gets to build a spaceship. Um <laughs> because that's how fucking excited I am when I when I saw this. That's exactly what I was thinking. So it was perfect. So that so September twenty fifth he released this image. Um and it's just an image of this Raptor engine. I mean, they come up with the best fucking names. I mean, we we've uh, we're finally reaching a stage where someone with some some style and some class, you know, we we had that with the with the with the iPhone, with Steve Jobs, the iPhone. We had that where it finally became a sleek thing, you know. I mean, we had the Razer Motorola phone, but still, cell phones were not like crazy important. I remember I grew up in that time, like. I was like 16, yeah, you had a phone in high school, but you know, nobody really, I, I mean, unless you you were out a lot and your parents wanted to make sure you had it, or you had enough money on your own to go get a cell phone, you didn't have one. It's not like today where everyone needs to have a cell phone. Um, and most of that is because they still weren't, why do you need it? You know, there wasn't a, a reason for it. And they made it something that was unique. And I think what SpaceX is doing, and what, what Elon Musk is doing, I'm sure there's a bunch of people behind it, but I'm going to give him credit for it. What he's doing, what he's leading the charge for is is combining the science with the style and and, and making it cool. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. So I, I love all of this stuff. And so September 26th, to get back oh, to what I was talking about, September 26th. Uh, SpaceX put out a tweet, this is, tomorrow Elon Musk will speak at IAC 2016 on making life interplanetary. It was at 1.30 central time. And the IAC is the International Astronautics uh, Congress. And I believe that was in Guadalajara, uh, Mexico. Uh, Let me make sure I'm not... uh... Yes, it was Guadalajara, Mexico. So he went down there. There is an hour-long... Uh, presentation that I have not had the chance yet to go through and I'll, I'll touch more in it uh, next episode. I'll do more of a coverage, but just some of the things to touch on here. Um, <laughs> so in their presentation, Elon was talking about the funding on how to get us to Mars, how to make human life interplanetary. And one of the slides was their funding for that. And on that list was steel underpants check, launch satellites check send cargo and astronauts to the iss check kickstarter check and profit so i don't know what steel underpants are i'm very interested to to see where that came from um <laughs> uh i i don't know maybe, uh, maybe uh, no oh he stole the underpants oh i'm reading it like they were steel like they were metal no he stole underpants okay all right all right that's fair enough um I don't know where they went to. I must have missed it in the... Oh, we'll, 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 we'll wait till next episode to find out what's going on with the underpants stealing here, the theft of underpants. But um, more importantly than that, uh, joking aside, a, a quote from Elon Musk that I think explains a lot of the the trust that I have with his mission. And his quote is, I don't have any further motivation to gain personal assets other than being able to help fund making human life interplanetary. So, whenever someone, especially a leader, I mean, we saw it with Steve Jobs, where, I mean, his goal was, was pretty evident, you know, and, and you could tell that his life was behind it. You know, um, he had a mission. And Elon Musk saying this is defining his mission. I mean, he said it for a very long time, but it's he's, re, he's rehashing it and he's not moving away from it. And it's that he truly believes, and from what his quote is saying gaining personal assets, getting more money, making more money, becoming more of a billionaire, millionaire, whatever, is not important to him anymore. The reason he's going to do that stuff is to make human life interplanetary. Because in his mind, the best thing we can do for humankind is to make sure that we're setting ourselves up to survive, which at the end of the day is is the the crux of of what life is, what we 're doing here, I mean we all get caught up in the day to day bullshit, and we all get caught up in some of the stupid things we deal with, especially in the modern world i mean if you're listening to this you you live in a modern world, I mean we get caught up in bullshit, you know, but at the end of the day it's about surviving you know when you boil it down nature evolution all those things they're about survival and one of the most biggest survival alarms that goes off when you realize that the planet is not the only thing out there that there are things there are situations that could happen whether we're we're struck by an asteroid or some other cosmic event happens if we get hit with a solar flare and our atmosphere is diminished we're done that's it game over you know and as far as surviving as a species being interplanetary is that ultimate insurance plan you know and and what he's saying there what i hear him saying there is that he's committed to his goal. You know, you could take it in many other ways, but I hear it as he is committed to this goal. I mean, his actions have shown that, I mean, you don't go this far (laughs) just to call it quits and go home, you know? And as someone who's a big picture lover, someone who loves seeing the big picture and, and looking down the road and, and, planning a goal to get to. This is some of the most exciting stuff that is happening right now in the world. You know, and there, and again, it's not, you know, in this conversation of going to Mars and making life interplanetary, it's not a new concept. It's not something that's new or something that hasn't been done before. It's, they're doing it at such a, pace and such a goal, they're, they're setting it so much higher than everyone else has ever done. You know, right now we send four people to the International Space Station. I think my number's right. You know, and with the commercial crew program, we'll be sending six at a time. But they're talking about sending 100 people on each trip and eventually down the road, sending up to 200 people each trip and i mean if you think about what what a mission consists of what what the people you send up on a mission right now to the international space Station, they each have a function you know there's a flight commander there are um there are scientists there are engineers um, and they all do things up there i mean that's when you're traveling in space you need things to do You, you can't just be sitting around doing nothing You know, you got to be, you got to be moving. You got to be getting things done. So having a hundred people on each trip means you're going to get a lot of things done. You're going to be able to have teams working on engineering projects and, and, you know, uh, just, just to throw out some ideas out there. I mean, one of those first trips will, will be setting up the first, uh, colony setting, well, setting up the operations, you know, setting up, okay, where are we living? How are we living? We need all the systems in place. We need um, to start figuring out all those things. I'm sure there'll be some behavioral studies. You know, uh, what is, you know, and and having a, a uh, an N, as, as we call it in science, having an N of 100 people to have a study based off of instead of six makes your test that much more robust. You know, and now you'll have a better picture of what, is the behavior of human beings on another planet, you know, living in a colony, uh, setting up a colony like that? Um, that's some fascinating shit that's going to go on, you know. And it's it's just it, there's not enough time in this episode to go over it. And that's why we're going to talk next week. <laughs> but there's there's so many ideas and and things that can happen. It's unbelievable. So let let's let's go back because. I could geek geek out on this more. Um, I'll save it for next week. So the Saturn V, which was the way we sent humans into space before. I mean, the Saturn V, other than the the shuttle, Saturn V is far and beyond the most famous slash most powerful rocket we've had. Um, Damn thing's humongous. That thing had five engines. The configuration... For this new first stage, uh, multi-stage rocket, the outer ring itself has 21 engines. The inner ring has 14, and the center cluster has seven clusters. So that's a total... uh, I mean, it's a total of 42 Raptor engines. you know this thing's going to be 77.5 meters tall 12 meters in diameter it's uh, it's just unbelievable i mean the the thrust level at sea the the sea level thrust is 128 mega newtons and the vacuum thrust is 138 mega newtons I mean, it's crazy, and I mean, if if you look, there's a great comparison of, of the SpaceX Mars vehicle and the Saturn V. So, if you look at it here, the liftoff mass of the Mars vehicle in, I'm not sure what that value is. What the hell is that value? T, what the hell is T? Anyways. Um the, you gotta check this out. I mean, just just talking about the ratio, so the gross liftoff mass, right, so the Mars vehicle is three and a half times more massive than the Saturn V. The liftoff thrust is three and a half at uh, three point six times greater, and that's uh, it's unbelievable. The vehicle height is a little bit tall, one point one times bigger. Uh the tank diameter is one point two times bigger uh but the expandable the expendable leo payload, which I'm taking to be the amount of payload that we can bring up the weight is four point one times greater, which definitely uh, has to be i mean we're we're talking a lot more equipment, especially if you're talking about. Bringing a hundred human beings to Mars on get this Elon Musk during that presentation. What did Elon say? He said this trip could take eighty days, eighty days people when the 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 running number is what seven months compared to just a few months eighty days i i I mean this is this is crazy. This is this is this is some awesome stuff, and I think a lot of that it has to do with the fact that we'll be able to refuel in orbit and use more fuel to get there, which means we'll be able to go faster. But not only go faster, we'll be able to land with the boosters. That changes the game entirely. You know, thinking about it from the physics aspect of it, right? If you know you want to get there faster, you're going to have to go faster right but that means you're going to have to slow down more and in most cases you know most scenarios where you're trying to figure out can this mission happen can we do this like like we've talked about before the importance of understanding how much fuel you have and landing the vehicle that you're that you're traveling with has not really been a thing ever. You know, other than uh, other than the space shuttle. I can't think of one that brought humans. Right? So I mean I mean, you know, the way Curiosity landed on Mars was with the 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 Hobgoblin-esque lander, you know, it, it had a uh, a glider that, that basically did the same idea, an assisted landing where it, it launched boosters to try and land and then descended the rover with basically a crane elevator down and released it on the ground safely. You know, I, uh, that was probably the first time, I, it's the first time I had ever seen anything like that. And it changed the whole paradigm of, for me, of what going to another planet and what space travel possibilities are out there. So when I saw that SpaceX was trying to use that same idea, it just makes all the sense to me. And it, it all I can think of is, why aren't we trying to do this more? You could also argue, why haven't we done this before? And there are a, a ton of reasons why. And I think the logical way to think about it is you have to look at what the people doing these missions before had to consider. You know, we're lucky now to have a private industry like this, a private space industry that they're allowed to innovate and create and drive the ways the space industry is done of their own accord and what they want to do. Um, obviously, people still, you know, have to listen to somebody. It's not like everyone's just doing their own thing. But in the history of space travel, it is a government agency run program. So you're you're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you have your funding, but you got your funding based on an idea you had to sell. And sometimes, based on an idea that you had to make possible, based on what has been done before, because there is high risk, and you know, government programs are not really known for thinking outside the box. They're very. This is what's happened before, so we're going to do that because we know it works. And that's that's been the 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 space industry's motto for a very long time. You know, you'll hear the phrase flight proven hardware or flight proven soft you know, those kind of things. I don't think software matters. Uh, but flight proven hardware. So the whole idea is if it's flown in space before and we know how it works, we're gonna use it. I don't want to use anything else because I don't know how it works. And it's a valid it's a valid thought when you're constricted to um a budget and basically, like they've had plenty of great ideas, but a lot of great ideas have fallen because they couldn't get the funding, or because they lost to something else that won the funding because people had more confidence in it happening. So there's a lot of that in in the way we've done the space industry before. But the beauty, and and and. The wonder of what SpaceX has been doing, and Blue Origins is behind them, and there's plenty of other aerospace companies, but no one's been able to do it like they have at the pace that they're doing it. And it's wonderful because they've already broken the paradigm of reusability is impossible. Well, it's not impossible. Now we're talking about is is reusability feasible, now we're changing now it's oh, oh okay so we've already figured out that we can land rockets which is arguably the biggest hurdle to get over for reusability right landing the the rocket right and we're going to see sometime soon uh with the uh with one of the the launchers cuz they already sold it um the first reusable rocket to fly can it perform you know is this going to work? You know, and basically this is like if the space shuttle was created by a private company and everyone else was saying, I don't know. It just, I just, I don't know if it's going to happen, you know? Um, but maybe that's not a, that's maybe that's not a great example. I mean, the space shuttle. So here's, here's the fundamental difference between what SpaceX is doing and what NASA has always done. And the other Space agencies like Roscosmos and, and all of them. NASA has always, has been building essentially Ferraris every time that they launch something. You know, they, they build one spectacular super car of a, a, you know, of a spaceship or a satellite or anything like that. But they build one. So, what SpaceX is doing is building a lot of Hondas. And I don't want that to make it seem like it's any less important than a Ferrari, because it's still a car. It's still a rocket bringing people to space. Does it matter if it's a Lamborghini? No, it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, would everyone like a Lamborghini? Yeah, but we're not talking about, you know, a pleasure drive here. We're talking about making space something that's uh, available to everybody. And what they're doing is is achieving that is is making all of this possible. Um and it's it's not it's not downstepping what NASA's done at all. Just it's a different approach, you know. Building that one big thing and having a large enough budget to, to make sure that that one project can succeed and then, you know, figuring out how to make that one project work is a lot more manageable with a limited budget. And when you have to make all your efforts focus on one thing, you know, it, it, it works. It has worked, but it doesn't move science fast enough forward for what we need it to be, especially going to Mars, so, I love everything about this interplanetary system, transport system. I, I think it's incredible. And we're going to talk way more about it, and I'm going to give you way more info about it next week. And take a look at that video and just wait until you start feeling the chills. And like when that window opens and they look at Mars, picture yourself there. Picture What would you do? What would be one of the first things you would even think, say, when you saw that. I mean, the more they do this, the more I even consider going into space. I mean, it's, it's wild. And the idea of Mars is getting closer and closer every day. All right, so that means this is a 3D printing update, so it's been a while, so let's get into it. So last month, uh, at the end of the month, uh, every month now, I've been going to uh, these GrabCAD community meetups, uh, which are at the GrabCAD headquarters in um, Cambridge, so uh, it's very cool meet new and interesting people every time people who are involved in 3D printing in some form or fashion and and every month uh there's a different uh there's a different topic so this month was 3D printing in education so it was very cool there were uh multiple speakers um and they were both from uh universities colleges so they were talking about how they were using 3D printing in education and uh, they both kind of brought some very interesting tips and tricks that they use too which was very very cool um the the first one um uh elaine from harvard she was talking about that she works with you know three different uh, schools and uh one one of the things i found very interesting is that they they use lean in their lab which lean of course is is the uh the act of eliminating waste and making things easier and more efficient and so you're not getting in your way as much. I mean, that's that's about as simple as I can make it. Um, but it's basically just getting better all the time and proving, you know, eliminating waste and getting better all the time. So um, they, they've been using 3D printing to help them do that, you know, making uh, custom uh, holders for some of their manufacturing parts. And literally, they can label them and make them the right size for all the parts they have so that the students know that's where it goes. You know, and uh, that's one of the st- one of the struggles they said they were dealing with is uh, definitely the fact that uh, students are messy just by nature. I was one not too long ago. I, I can attest to that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's because they I don't know, for whatever reason, we just don't care. It's not ours, I guess. Yeah, I guess maybe that's what it is. Either way. Um, by, a, by creating things, you know, point-of-view storage, really custom things that you can't buy anywhere else or it would be super, super expensive to, they can pr- print it for themselves and, and have their own stuff, which is very cool. But it doesn't just stop there. I mean, they had custom labs. There was a, a laser setup that they built custom for that project. Uh, there was a material science. That, that was the same one, the material science. They were just doing diffraction. Um, so they had, they built these custom setups with 3d printing for these projects that uh, would have cost them an arm and a leg. Uh, so they were able to get these scientific projects off the ground faster and basically cheaper than you'd be able to ever. And another big thing was, you know, these big, they would have these big giant projects or they, so they would seem, um, that would take up a ho- huge amount of space and then they'd only get used once. So then then what are you gonna do with it? You're just, just sitting there, it's just a giant waste of space where with 3D printing and customizing these projects, they can scale these things down so that basically all the components uh, work on, you know, one of their setups and then everything gets put away and it's like in a shoebox, basically. You know, and they put that away and they can pull it out when they need it. You know, just, just crazy stuff like that. Um, making things better. Um, There was some vibrational and damping mechanical systems they did that that were helped with 3D printing. Um, They also, uh, there was a multivariable calculus professor that needed some help with paraboloids and topography and stuff like that. And so uh, they were able, basically what they were doing was making 3D representations of these multivariable calculus Methods and theories, so that the students were able to see and the the teacher was able to show the different parts of you know um these three d uh, mathematical equations so that it's it's much easier to represent and show and i I know as a student who who excels better with visual learning. In multivariable calculus, I mean, any visualization help is huge to help you understand. And for someone who's also a kinesthetic learner, someone who learns with their hands, uh, being able to hold those things and look at them and move them around and and physically touch them would have been huge. So I think everything that uh, Lane was doing at uh, Harvard is is awesome. Uh, Shout out. It was real fun talking to you. Uh, And I found out during the presentation uh, she's a... she's a, we're fellow alumni. So that was really cool to know. Um, another big thing she was stressing is that, you know, educational tools and things like these multivariable calculus examples and educational examples in general, uh, they're definitely needed. You know, there's not really a lot of these libraries out there where educational institutions or just teachers in general who, who are being proactive and going after looking for these things can actually find these models to then, uh, able to teach them with. So uh, it was it was cool with GrabCAD being there, being a software uh, company themselves. Uh, they're working on one as well. But it was very interesting to see that, that that's not really out there yet. I mean, 3D printing, it is a young industry, um, and it's moving forward in many different directions. And it'll be interesting to see um, <clears throat> if more people start providing more educational tools. Uh, I'm actually working on a project right now um, getting uh, involved in helping some uh, educators with 3D printing right now, so uh, we'll be talking more about that when when the uh, the project finally services. But uh, yeah, so very interesting f- seeing the needs you know from the educational side. Very very interesting. Uh, and the other, not uh, that uh, we don't have too much time left, but not to undermine it by the amount of time we're covering it. But there was another professor um, from MIT. Uh, tasker who uh, deals with 550 mechanical engineering students, um, and you know works on prototyping and testing and analysis and, and ideation, uh, and it's, it's actually part of their whole iteration. It's how they're, uh, it's you know going through this circular motion of prototyping, testing, analysis, ideation, you know, constantly going through that and and making things better, which is, you know, what I do a lot of with 3D printing that is at the core of what you're able to do with 3D printing. Um, But it's not just 3D printing for them. I mean, they do uh, at at their lab, um, the Papalardo lab, they're working uh, with manufacturing uh, all types from traditional mills, lathes, um, you know, water jet cutters, um, laser engravers uh, you, you know you name it I mean they're doing I think they were doing some injection molding I, I, I could be wrong but manufacturing as a whole these kids are working on these things and they have these really cool classes where they actually basically start a small company and the whole thing is to develop a product and they go through this whole they go through all the steps of it of you know designing it and then manufacturing it and then you know putting a business plan together, and I think that's a very huge and very important and valuable thing for a student to go from start to finish with. You know, uh, working in teams is going to help because not everyone's ready. I know I wasn't ready to do the scale of projects I worked on, so having teams was huge, uh, and it was just great meeting everybody there. I love these things. If you ever get a chance to go to one of these GrabCAD meetups and these 3D printing industry things, go. It's It's just fun to meet people and everyone else there is just looking to to have some time uh, have some fun um spend some time hanging out with some people and learn some things new i mean that's at the end of the day you can't ask for anything more than that so i uh, can't wait for next month next month is aerospace so we're gonna have a lot more to talk about with that and that does it for this week's 3d printing update it is brought to you as always by ag 3 d Printing. Uh, check us out at a g three d printing on instagram or wwwag three d printing dot com and it just became October, which means as scary as it is, the holiday season is coming up, and you know if you 're really trying to to give a kick ass gift or really wow someone this christmas or hanukkah you know they 're both falling on the same date this year um, uh, obviously Hanukkah is a lot more than one day but are around the same time, which means if you try and go out shopping, it's going to be a madhouse more than it's going to be on every other year. And if you know anything about me, I hate going out shopping. I do all, I try to do all my shopping online, but sometimes with online shopping, you can't find what you're really looking for to, to give that special someone for the holidays. So um, this year, think about a 3D printed gift. I mean, I can tell you from all the 3D printing projects we've been doing here with AG3D, just the fact that it's three D printed is it it's it adds a level of wow and 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 awe to to the gift, and it's customized to the, you know for a specific project. It is a one of a kind, you know, and uh, it just it's just an extra special gift. So for right now, up up until October sixteenth, if you want to be proactive, if you want to be on top of your shit and your game contact me uh, at on Twitter, Facebook, or at ag3d.engineering at gmail.com and mention the code word DECEMBER, and I'll give you 10% off your gift for this Christmas. Be early because once my lineup, once my schedule fills up with Christmas and Hanukkah projects, it's all over. I won't be able to fit anyone else in. So make sure you do it early and get it done as quick as possible and you get 10% off it doesn't get any better than that so uh make sure you check that out and that does it for this week you know thank you for listening everybody I really appreciate it uh don't forget go out there be yourself unapologetically go out there do what you do and spread love and spread science people you're the one that can make your future bright and amazing so go out there and do it all right folks Love you guys. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.